Was that you again? Hi, welcome. Welcome back. If you've been here before, if not, welcome for the first time to Downtown the Podcast. It's episode 54. I'm Rich Kimball, here with Carrie Haskell from our Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine. Downtown the Podcast is brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength, and by Pineland Farms Dairy, Maine Cows, Maine Milk, Maine Cheese, Pineland Farms. Two very interesting conversations on our program this week. Singer-songwriter Al Stewart and author Nick Parisi will visit with us and talk about the great Rod Serling. On our radio show, we've been looking back at Rod Serling's career as the 60th anniversary of The Twilight Zone is coming up this fall. Nick takes an in-depth look at all of Serling's work pre- and post-Twilight Zone, and we'll talk with him about that in the second half. But first, a singer-songwriter who made his mark here in the States back in the mid-1970s with the smash hit Year of the Cat. Well, Al Stewart is more than just Year of the Cat. He's been making music for more than five decades now, and we uh, learned a lot and heard some very funny stories in our conversation with Scottish singer-songwriter, now based in Southern California, Al Stewart. I was, oddly enough, midway through um, writing a set of lyrics, and it got away from me, but I see it on the calendar. All right, I hope I didn't interrupt the creative process here. Well, it's I've I've covered two and a half pages of... of, uh, (laughs) <laughs> of lyrics here. I, I tend to write too many words. I, can, I, I think I could pause for a moment. I, I think I know where I'm going with it, so I can probably pick it back up again. All right. Let's begin, if we can, Al, by uh, going back to the very beginnings. You've been playing music uh, a long time, and you began as a rocker, but I understand that, that you took some inspiration in an interesting way from Bob Dylan, uh, both as a songwriter, but also uh, because of, dare we say, the quality of his singing voice. Um, yes, I, I did begin um, uh, when the Beatles uh, happened in uh, England. I think probably almost every other kid uh, joined a band. I mean, it, it, there were just, I think there were eight, they were called beat groups in those days. And there were about 80 in the town that I lived in. Um, and I, the problem was, I mean, I joined one just like everybody else, and we would play Twist and Shout three times a night and wipe out and all these things <laughs> that were popular. And um, it, eventually I got a tape recorder and I was, I don't know, 17 or something and I was beginning to write songs uh, and I taped myself and I sounded awful. And um, the other problem was that, you know, you, you had to play the guitar and within a couple of years of, of that period, you had Jimmy Page and Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck and all those people. Um, and I couldn't really play the guitar well enough. I couldn't sing either. And... and uh, <laughs> Then I made the mistake of looking in the mirror, and I did not look like Elvis Presley. <laughs> didn't, didn't sound like Paul McCartney. I mean, the whole thing was a disaster. I mean, I was 17 years old, and um, the only thing that I truly loved in life was, uh, you know, this music. Um, and I realized I wasn't very good at it. And, and that's a crushing blow. You know, I mean, it's like uh, if you only have one thing in life that you love and want to do, and you realize that you're really not any good at it. Um, I mean, it makes you. I mean, it makes you want to throw yourself off a building. I think. Um, so, at this very moment, who should come along but Bob Dylan? Um, and I bought his first uh, couple of albums, and uh, you know, he sang like a like a farmhand, uh, and this was absolutely wonderful because he wrote like uh, you know a, a great poet. And I thought, well, you know, there's another way to to crack this thing. That it, it, it's it's a dilemma, but it can be done. Maybe 
Um, it can be done, you know, by writing lyrics. I mean, that, it had never occurred to me before because uh, rock and roll is, you know, it's visceral. It's all about the sound. It's about the beat. It's about being young and enthusiastic. And uh, Dylan's singing, I don't know, Hard Rains Are Gonna Fall or Masters of War or these things. And they're very long and they're very complicated. And <laughs> it's done just, you know, with a, with a handful of chords, three or four chords. Uh, musically, it's incredibly simple, but lyrically, it's incredibly dense. Uh, so I did a complete about face and sold my electric guitar and went up to London and started uh, singing, uh, being a folk singer in coffee bars. And um, it, it just, I, I thought I would do it for a while and see what it was like. And at the same time, I was auditioning for uh, different bands. I auditioned for a band called the Par- Paramounts and they turned into Procol Harum, but I didn't get the job. <laughs> uh, so that's it. I became a folk singer by default. And I found myself living in an apartment with uh, Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel at one point, And that was really helpful because I was watching how Paul wrote songs. And uh, I thought, oh, that's how you do it, you know. And, um, and I, you know, I met Bert Jantz and people like that from the early folk scene. And uh, at the big, in the beginning of 1965, I basically was still trying to join rock and roll bands. And I thought the folk thing might be, uh, you know, it might be an, an interesting sideline. But that by the end of 1965, I'd sold my electric guitar and I was a folk singer. And that was it. It changed my life. Um, and it was all because I couldn't play or sing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you came out with your first album, Bedsetter Images, uh, Bedsitter Images, 1967. Now, you also worked with Yoko along the way before she and John Lennon even knew each other. Is that right? Yeah, I bet I met both of them before they knew each other. It's an, it's an interesting thing. Um, I'd met John Lennon uh, briefly um, backstage at a, at a Beatle concert, and he was very nice. He let me play his guitar. Uh, and then, oh, in, I think it was 1966, I was in London, uh, and I met Yoko Ono and uh, became a co-producer of one of her movies, uh, film number four. If you actually look at it, I don't think anyone has seen this. It's such an obscure thing. Um, but I, I think I'm still listed in the, in the credits as a co-producer. <laughs> and anyway, I started hanging out with Yoko because I had a tape recorder. And uh, Yoko was you know, beginning to do her projects, her musical projects. And so I, I could play the guitar too somewhat. So uh, I would tune the guitar to modal D and start playing Indian ragas and, <laughs> and Yoko would chant over the top of it. And uh, this went on for, I don't know, six months or so. We did it, you know, maybe a couple of times a week. And I ended up with like about six hours of uh, of Yoko uh, and me. And um, then, uh, as I say it, uh, one day she met a man with a bigger tape recorder. <laughs> this, of course, was John Lennon. And uh, after that, I didn't see her again. So, uh, you know, that, that was an interesting period of my life. <laughs> We're talking with Al Stewart here on Downtown. Next to music, another great passion of yours was history, and you brought those two together in 1973 with the album Past, Present, and Future and found this wonderful niche that really was not being filled when it comes to historical songwriting. No, um, it, it, of course, it goes back to, um, it goes back, you know, through thousands and thousands of years. It probably is the earliest form of uh, songwriting people would write about, uh, you know, People would write about the Peloponnesian War, and then they would travel around uh, ancient Greece from village to village, singing songs about the heroes of the day. Uh, and it fell out. It, it was like that for a very long time, uh, and then it fell out of favor. I think in the last century, 
um, and you know historical ballads disappeared, but they were always there up until that time. So it's not something I invented; it's just something I revived. Um, and I think people have developed shorter and shorter attention spans and tend to write in, you know, very limited hieroglyphical ways. And and I, I think back, uh, you know, even a, I don't know, a century ago. Uh, maybe a little more, um, you know, women, well-bred women would get up in the morning and they would spend two hours composing letters. And uh, these letters were absolutely beautifully done. I mean, the choice of language was wonderful if you read them now. And the calligraphy was wonderful. And, uh, you know, they're, they're small masterpieces. And uh, this, this entire writing style has vanished from the modern world. It, it just isn't there anymore. And people use shorthand to communicate with each other, you know, over cell phones. Um, and there's something, something about that period and the periods immediately before it, which is immensely appealing to me. I mean, uh, people joke that I write my songs on parchment by candlelight with a quill pen. Um, and it's, it's half true that I do. I mean, I mentally do that. And, and, I, and I think I would actually enjoy doing that. Um, it's, it's just that things aren't written that way anymore. Anyway, so I decided I would write historical songs and I would bring back some of the drama of um, of yesteryear in, in the writing style. Well, and the first song of yours that uh, I was drawn to as a young man and was from that album was Warren Harding. How did you come to write a song about one of our, well, let's just say least effective American presidents? Well, <laughs> um, I have, I, I, I mean, a, at, at some point in my life, I had uh, studied all the American presidents, and, and I discovered that um, I found the bad ones more simpatico, really, <laughs> than the good ones. I, I always actually enjoyed, um, you know, the bad ones, because <laughs> <laughs> some of them were so crazy, and as you say, ineffectual. I mean, I, I like Franklin Pierce. What can I tell you? I mean, he's the only one that looks like a rock star. Uh, he kind of looks like an older Brian Ferry. And Warren Harding you know, presided over prohibition. So the, the song actually is partly about prohibition and it's partly about, uh, you know, the, the crazy uh, life and the untimely death that he had. A couple of years later, you teamed up with Alan Parsons for Modern Times. Uh, what was that collaboration like? Well, it, was, uh, it came about very quickly. We were having dinner in a restaurant. And Alan is very understated, and um, we were talking about, well, actually, we were talking about wine, because that's what we always talk about when we get together. And I believe that we were drinking a 1966 Chateau Palmer. I mean, I have an almost photographic memory of every bottle of wine that I've ever drunk, and, and with who. Anyway, that is by the by, and during the course of discussing the Palmer, um, I said, I'm making a new record. Uh, would you like to produce it? And it took about five seconds, Alan thought about it, and he said, oh, all right. And then we went back to talking about wine. It was, it was really that simple. <laughs> <laughs> well, the song that, of course, uh, exploded on the scene here in America, although it was never a hit uh, back in England or in the United Kingdom at all, was it was Year of the Cat. Now, am I right that when you wrote that song originally, they were completely different lyrics? Yeah, one of the things I do, because I write so many words, uh, I've, I've written two and a half pages of lyrics already today, and it's only 10 o'clock here, so <laughs> <laughs> I just write lots of words. So um, Think about a blues player. Think about a, a lead guitar player in a blues band. Uh, what, what you do is they make the backing track, you know, the bass, the drums, keyboards, whatever, and then the, the guitar player goes out into the studio, and he'll make, oh, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 passes at the solo. 
uh, and you know, then the producer listens to all the all the different uh, things that he's done and picks the ones that he thinks is um, would be would be right for the song. Would, would be the you know the great guitar solo. So a musician will do that. A musician will do you know lots and lots of passes at the music, trying trying to get something perfect or something special. Um, and how I work is exactly the opposite way. We we knock out the backing tracks. We did the whole of the year of the Cat record with no lyrics. Uh, literally, I, I, I hadn't written them. We, we just went in and we, and we recorded, I don't know, 40 minutes of music. And I took all the tracks home. And then I would write, you know, I'd get up in the morning and I would write different sets of lyrics to everything. So some of those songs had three or four completely different sets of lyrics. Or if, if a song had four verses, I would write 12 verses. And then, <laughs> then I would weed through it and throw away the ones that I didn't you know, particularly like, and oddly enough, I go back and look at them now and I, I probably chose all the wrong ones, <laughs> but there are, yeah, I mean, I, there's an entire set of lyrics for uh, year of the cat uh, called foot of the stage about an English comedian. And I'd seen this comedian shortly before he committed suicide, but I knew something was terribly wrong. The audience were laughing because they thought it was all part of the show. And so I wrote this song and it went, his tears fell down like rain at the foot of the stage. And that's what it was called. Um, and then somewhere along the line, uh, I had a girlfriend who had a, a book on Vietnamese astrology. And um, it was open at a chapter called The Year of the Cat. So I just watched the Casablanca movie. So I launched into a completely different set of lyrics. And I um, wasn't sure which one to pick. But the American record uh, company said, well, we've never heard of this English comedian, so let's have it Year of the Cat. <laughs> <laughs> but it could easily have been put on the stage. I mean, I, I have alternate lyrics for tons of different songs. You know, it's just how I work. Now, is it true that you weren't crazy about the saxophone that was added to the song? Well, I I'm, I just didn't think a saxophone belonged in uh, folk rock. I mean, folk rock to me is, um, you know, guitar-based drums. You know, it's... Uh, that's what it is, you know, and the, a saxophone to me was a jazz instrument, and I didn't think it belonged in in a, in a song uh, in that style, but um, Alan convinced me that it was a good idea, and uh, of course it was a good idea because people <laughs> like it, but um, it, it, I, I still, you know, I, I was doing jangle folk rock, you know, like the right. bird, Simon and Garfunkel, you know, and uh, saxophones just seemed like out of place with what I was doing. But obviously, um, you know, <laughs> I guess Alan was right about it. Well, Year of the Cat was hugely successful, as was the follow-up album, uh, Time Passages. Was there any sense to you or the producers or the record company that you needed to make uh, radio-friendly songs after the success of Year of the Cat? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, it, it's, um, it brought out a, a little devilish impulse in me because... Um, uh, Clive Davis, who was the head of Arista Records that released Time Passages, um, had more or less decided that this is what we should do. We should, you know, have mid-tempo ballads with saxophones on them. And if we did this, we could keep doing this. <laughs> they would make the charts. And uh, I found this very distressing. I mean, I wanted to go back to writing my historical songs, and I wasn't at all sure about all this pop star business. It, it seemed a little, um, I don't know, it just seemed a little shallow to me. Um, so in, in order to annoy Clive and, and get, get him off the subject, I, I actually literally wrote a song uh, to be played on the radio and called it Song on the Radio. 
knowing, of course, that radio people are so vain that we will play anything if it's got radio in it. Even better if it's a good song. The stupid thing uh, actually made the top 30. It was was a minor hit. Um, But that was just me being, uh, I I, I don't know, it was me trying to, you know, sort of get out of all of this, really. And then, of course, I got myself deeper into it. Well, you went on to make up more albums that were, I think, uh, in keeping with your musical sensibilities. And one of my absolute favorites uh, came out in the mid-90s as a a history teacher and a lover of history. Uh, One of my favorite albums of yours is Between the Wars. Yes, yes, I like that. I was uh, kind of influenced by Django Reinhardt a little bit. Mm. I was, um, at the time, I mean, I tend to live in different periods of time on different days. I'll wake up and spend the whole day in like 1648 or something. And it just, you know, I'll just be there. I won't be in the modern world at all. Um, and at the time I was um, in the 30s, I was reading a whole series of books by Alan First, who's a, a brilliant writer who, who sets most of his it's spy novels, really, um, in the 1930s, in, in most of it in Eastern Europe. And so I was knee deep in in the in the 1930s and uh, started writing these songs. And before I knew where I was, I had a, an album. And because it was all set between the wars, that's what I called it. Uh, you continue to tour extensively. You've also got a wonderful DVD out uh, live at Carmel by the Sea and a, a chance to reunite with old friend Peter White. Yeah, um, I. I, I that DVD, I don't really know much about that. I, was, I had a friend who had a camera. I mean, it's not really a very professional thing. He just set up a camera and recorded the show. And uh, because I don't play with Peter that often anymore, um, you know, I thought the fans might like it. So uh, they, somebody put it out. And you'll also be here uh, in the East. It'll be good to have you here on the, on the right side of the country. Well, you know, we, I, I, I play everywhere all the time. I mean, it, it's shocking to me. I mean, I thought that I tell you, when I was at school, when I when I was seventeen, um, the, my parents and my school teachers uh, gave me a stern lecture about uh, you know about, about music and about <laughs> trying to make a career in it. And they said the whole thing was a fad and it would be over in um, it would be over in six months. And I, I I thought, well, I've got to leave school immediately if if I'm only going to be able to do this for six months, I'd better get started. <laughs> uh, the incredible thing was the advice they gave me. Um, coincided <laughs> exactly with um, the release of uh, the first single by a group from Liverpool called the Beatles. <laughs> so they could not have been more right. It would be technically impossible for, for all the adults in my life at the time to have been more wrong. I mean, they were just completely 180 degrees wrong about everything. So here I am half a century later, and I'm still doing the thing that they said would only last six months. And there's, there's something absolutely divine about all of this. Um, I have a couple of children, and I'm absolutely resolute in not giving them any advice whatsoever because all the advice I got when I was young was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're very glad it was, and we're still enjoying the music all these years later. Yeah, well, I'm writing about the Siberian dilemma at the moment. Do you know what that is? Uh, well, I'm not sure. Which, which Siberian dilemma? Oh, there only is one as far as I know, and it's this. Um, periodically, you know, when the springtime, when the ice begins to melt uh, uh, over the freezing water, um, people fall in. They fall through the ice and they fall into this very, very cold water. And the the Siberian dilemma is this. Um, If you fall in, uh, you are going to freeze to death in basically one minute. I mean, you know, that's it. You've got one minute to live. 
But if you, your every impulse you have wants you to climb out. But if you do climb out and you're and you're soaking mm-hmm. wet in the freezing air, you die in thirty seconds. <laughs> <laughs> so the Siberian dilemma is: do you stay in and live a little bit longer, or do you try and climb out? And um, this is what this is what I'm trying to write about at this very moment. I, I can't wait to hear the finished product. It sounds wonderful. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we'll, we'll see. I've, I've covered, like I said, I've covered two and a half pages, and I'm not done yet. So, <laughs> well, we'll let you get back to it, Al. Thank you so much. We wish you continued success and good health. Thanks. Well, that's some good stuff there from Al Stewart. Like him, we're surprised by Bummer. We thought he would be a, a good guest. No idea about the the great stories that he would have for us, and the skill of telling those stories. I mean, that that's a lost. That, that's an art form unto itself, and. Not everybody is good at it. He is great at it. Nobody else could tell us about the Siberian dilemma quite like Al Stewart. (laughs) (laughs) When we come back, uh, we'll have some stories about one of the most creative people in the history of the television business, the great Rod Serling, who died uh, fairly young, 1975, at the age of 50. But his legacy has carried forward for lo these many years. This fall marks the 60th anniversary of of his landmark television series, The Twilight Zone. But Rod Serling was about more than that as well. Nick Parisi has chronicled his career in a terrific new book, and we'll talk with him about it after this word from our friends at Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Since 2005, Pineland Farms Dairy has been making the finest cheese in Maine. Their cheddar, Monterey Jack, Pepper Jack, Baby Swiss, feta, and cheese curds are all made with all-natural milk from Maine. You can find Pineland Farms Dairy everywhere. Hannaford Supermarkets, Shaw's, Whole Foods, other great shops throughout Maine and New England. You can visit them online as well at pinelandfarmsdairy.com. Maine cows, Maine milk, Maine cheese, Pineland Farms. Sixty years ago this fall, The Twilight Zone premiered on CBS television. It would run for five seasons and become one of the most acclaimed shows in the history of television. Our next guest, author Nick Parisi, looks at the career of the creator of that series, Rod Serling, Starting at the beginning, long before Twilight Zone, when he was writing for local television in Cincinnati, the live television days of the 1950s, and an extensive career after the show went off the air as well. Here's our conversation with Nick Parisi, the author of Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination. Congratulations and and thank you as a, a Rod Serling fan for this incredible book and the research, which uh, I, I just... I I can't imagine how long it took, but worth all that time because it's the most comprehensive look at Rod Serling that I've ever seen. I I appreciate that, Rich. Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, I, you know, I I approached it right from the very beginning as 
as you know, I intended it to be the most complete uh, assessment of Rod Serling's work of his entire career from beginning to end. And uh, it's nice to hear at least one person <laughs> thinks that I succeeded in what I just set out to do. Well, and of course, all of us uh, seemingly started with the Twilight Zone, although uh, some folks may have started with Night Gallery. But it's, to me, so fascinating to learn about what happened before and after Twilight Zone. And, and that's, to me, what makes this book so fascinating. And I want to go back, well, almost to the beginning, not all the way back to Binghamton, but back to Cincinnati. Can you talk a little bit about the role that Cincinnati, the storm, and that time in his life played in the development of Rod Serling as a writer? Sure. It was, uh, it was instrumental. It was, uh, you know, that was the period that Rod Serling was really cutting his teeth as a dramatic writer. He was, uh, he was learning his craft, learning to write at that time. And he really got lucky in a lot of ways because when he got out of college in, in Ohio, he, uh, you know, he first got a job at WLW Radio, which was a very um, depressing job for him. It was, you know, just writing fluff pieces and, you know, news patter and things like this. And he was not happy with that. But when he got a chance to write for this series called Storm on WKRC-TV, um, the nice thing about it was a couple of things, really, was, first of all, they didn't have a sponsor at the time. It was a self-sustaining show. I mean, WKRC was paying freight uh, for the show. And because they didn't have a sponsor, Rod Sewing did not have anybody really to butt heads with as far as subject matter went and theme went. So he really had a lot of freedom to address some of those topics that he would later get into trouble with on, on network television. So he didn't have that problem on the storm. And then the other thing was that the producer of the storm, a man by the name of Bob Huber, uh, really did give him a lot of leeway and a lot of freedom to write what he wanted to write. So, so he wrote, um, he wrote a lot of science fiction and a lot of fantasy, uh, as well as drama. And he was able to do what he did later in his career, which is try to use television as a vehicle to address, you know, socially relevant themes. And he did it very well. And, you know, when you read those old scripts, you know that it's the early, you know, it's, it's a writer in his developing stage. But, um, but it's pretty remarkable when you really look at it, what he was able to get accomplished at that time. And it's amazing to think that you had a, a local television station back in those early days doing these full-scale live productions. Yeah, it was, it was, as far as I can tell, it was the first and only show at that time to do a weekly live dramatic original uh, program like this. And it was broadcast only in that Cincinnati area. It wasn't set to the networks or anything. And, you know, the bad news about that, of course, is that almost none of these shows still exist. Um, almost none of them were actually filmed or kinescoped at the time. So, so it's pretty much a lost uh, part, part of Rod Serling's career, unfortunately. Well, and to me, that's what makes your research so important, because so many of these shows, not just the ones done in Cincinnati, but many that were broadcast on network television are gone forever. But can you talk a little bit about how you were able to track down these scripts from those early years, whether it was from uh, the Cincinnati days or from things like the Hallmark Hall of Fame, the Kraft Television Theater and others? Yeah, well, the one thing I had in my, uh, you know, to my advantage was that Rod Serling, uh, he left behind this enormous paper trail. He was uh, the type of person who kept everything. So he, uh, he actually set up archives. He donated most of his materials to uh, the Wisconsin State Historical Society in Madison, Wisconsin, and that's a whole story in itself why it's <laughs> there. But, but he, so he donated 80 
80 boxes of materials to that location. Uh, there are scripts and there are there's correspondence and contracts, letters, you know, all sorts of things are there. So so that that's like the treasure trove. So my first stop was was there just to go through absolutely everything there. Um, but there are other archives. There's one at UCLA um, when he was teaching, um, when he was well, he was living not far from UCLA. He donated a lot of stuff there. And then at, um, at, at um, Ithaca College, when he was teaching there, he donated some things there. So there were essentially three different archives that I had to go to um, to track down these scripts. And then beyond the scripts, then I also just watched absolutely everything that still exists, and there's a lot of it. Um, you know, the Paley Center in New York City has a, has a mm. real nice uh, catalog of old television, including Sterling, of course. So I was able to watch everything that they have, and I was able to collect a lot of things on my own. So... If something exists, I watched it, and, and in the book, if I have a synopsis of something, it's based on me watching it or reading the actual script. And not everything in those early years was a masterwork, and, and you're uh, very honest in, in your assessment of some of those, but also a number of the early stories and even the local productions would eventually find their way in some fashion, many of them into the Twilight Zone. Yeah, Serling was, um, he was a master at recycling. Um, recycling, not just from a practical standpoint, like you know, I, I can reuse a story idea and you know, get paid for it again. But but he was he had certain themes and certain you know certain character types that he wanted to reexamine over and over again. So he would he would do that. He would take a theme from an earlier story that maybe hardly anybody saw on some live television show early on, and he would reuse it in you know in a new series and with a new new character, whatever it may be. So. So yeah, some of the stuff from the storm found you know found its way into the Twilight Zone. Some of the stuff, you know, all, a lot of things from his early career ended up being recycled into all different all different series that he did later on. We're talking with Nick Parisi here on Downtown. In 1954, uh, Rod Serling and his wife Carol left and uh, moved east to be closer to New York. Moved to Connecticut, and in early 1955, had what was really his first national success of the show that put him on the map, and that was the production. Uh, of patterns. And as you pointed out, uh, it, it made him a star. Uh, it gave him great confidence and it gave him some freedom, but also it uh, was really the start of him battling with censors for the next several years. Yeah. Yeah. Because he really did have, uh, you know, he had that, he had a name all of a sudden, all of a sudden he had some stature and he said, if I have this stature, I am going to use it. I'm going to use it for what I think is important. And that is not only to address socially relevant subjects on television, but also to write, you know, to, to try and uplift television, to try and expand it into becoming an actual art form, to try and, you know, make it progress uh, as far as, you know, the, the themes that it's addressed and also in the, you know, the, the language, really, the, the writing level, the level of the writing. And he, want, he wanted to do that. So, but especially with the themes that he wanted to address, particularly prejudice, um, he was, you know, he was uh, up against the sponsors and the network censors every time he tried to do it. And but he did try. He continued to try, even though, you know, as I put it in the book, he would lose these battles, but he would always go down fighting. And that, that was the, the important thing. Well, patterns made him a star, but it would be a while before he could, uh, in some ways, seem like uh, get the albatross of patterns off from around his neck. And it would take the success of Requiem for a heavyweight to do that. Yeah, you know, the one thing I do, I try to uh, get across in the book, though, is that I think that for Serling, you know, Serling always uh, played up that idea that it took so long for Requiem to finally break through and, you know, take that patterns, you know, uh, 
you know, as you said, albatross off of his neck. But but the period between patterns and record for heavyweight, I think Rod Sterling wrote plenty of really good things in there. They just weren't quite uh, of the pre- of the uh, critical success that patterns was. I mean, he wrote the rack in between uh, mm. patterns and record for heavyweight, and the rack was one of Sterling's favorite pieces of work, and I happen to think it's one of his best scripts. Um, he wrote some other things that were very, very good in that period, but but for Sterling, he really needed the critical success that patterns had given him, and then Requiem uh, surpassed Patterns, if, if anything. It was a gigantic success. Uh, another success and an acclaimed script uh, was The Velvet Alley. And as you explain in the book, that, that might be as close to the real Rod Serling as we get in that story. It's one of them, yeah. I mean, Rod Serling was uh, autobiographical in several of, his, you know, several of his pieces of work. But, um, but The Velvet Alley is one where he really... Uh, he took a, you know, an actual incident, which was him essentially breaking up with his uh, agent at the time, and he, ex- he extrapolated on it. He said, what if, you know, this is how it went, uh, went bad? You know, if, it, if a writer did that and really kind of sold himself out to the success, you know, this is what could happen. So he kind of saw what was happening to himself and, and, and brought it to the extreme. And, and he would say, it wasn't my story, but it could have been my story or it could have been anybody's story. And actually, the real story of what happened when he left for another agent tells us a lot about the real Rod Serling and the care he took to make sure that she was protected. Yeah, he really did. Uh, he, uh, yeah, he made sure that uh, that his prior agent was taken care of in the new contract, that she would still continue to get a piece of uh, scripts that the new agents sold on his behalf, and that she would basically still continue to, hold, to handle his television work in New York and that they would concentrate on his feature film work in Hollywood. So she really did um, take every possible measure to, to keep her in, uh, under consideration. We moved to the Twilight Zone, and uh, well, actually what preceded that was a special entitled The Time Element that many people refer to as the pilot for the Twilight Zone. Yeah, we, we say it's, you know, the unofficial pilot, you know, because it was, you know, wasn't the Twilight Zone, but it was supposed to be. It was, uh, Rod Sterling submitted it to CBS as uh, the Twilight Zone, the time element, and it was it was uh, supposed to be the pilot for the Twilight Zone, and and what happened was the network people read it and they rejected it as a pilot, and they rejected it because they just felt that the ending, or really the premise in general, but the ending particularly, was going to be too outlandish for the general you know public to to grasp. And looking at it now, you think. They must have thought we're all idiots because it's just it's not that it's not that difficult a concept to grasp. It's a time travel issue, and it's just you know it's a it's a typically ambiguous Twilight Zone esque ending, but it's really not that outlandish. But at the time, it was so. So they rejected it, and uh, the Desilu Playhouse bought it, and because uh, Desi Arnaz and the producer at the time they they both loved Sterling and they loved this particular script, and they they wanted it, so they produced it on the Desilu Playhouse. And it was a big hit. It got a lot of positive uh, viewer mail and, you know, got, you know, uh, good notices in the papers. And it kind of opened up CBS's eyes to the idea that, you know, maybe the public is is ready for this type of show. And The Twilight Zone had already been, you know, he'd already been uh, negotiating it. And this just kind of pushed it over the over the hump. And then in the fall of 1959, The Twilight Zone would premiere on CBS. We're actually going to be talking with Earl Holloman uh, in a couple of weeks, who starred in that first episode, Where Is Everybody? And right from the get-go, that that episode separated Twilight Zone from everything else that was on TV at the time. It really, really did. It was, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, it's really the perfect pilot, because 
It really showcased what the Twilight Zone was about. It didn't, but it didn't do it in a, again, a, a really outlandish way. It was, uh, it was uh, accessible to the, to the average person. They were able to grasp what was going on in the show, even if the character himself is confused. And the whole show is about this guy who wakes up in a town and, or apparently wakes up in a town and doesn't know who he is and there's nobody else in town. He doesn't know where he is. And he's just trying to find out what, you know, what's going on, you know? So it's, it's, it's a one person show. And it makes the audience really, you know, identify with that single character, and it's easily graspable. And the ending is, you know, a Twilight Zone type of, you know, twist ending. So it's, and it did the job of the pilot. It sold the show, and it got very good reviews, and the show was off and running from there. Five seasons of the Twilight Zone before it wrapped up, and you have to wonder, looking back, because he he did die at such an early age, the demands of doing that show because he wrote uh, an incredible number of the scripts that were aired on the twilight zone. Could anybody have kept that up for more than five years? Yeah, it's hard to imagine uh, that anybody could have. And, and, and he certainly would have, would have admitted that he was running out of gas at the, at the end of the twilight zone. I mean, he wrote 92 of the twilight zone's 156 episodes, and that's just a phenomenal number. And by the end, yes, he was his, the quality of the Twilight Zone scripts were certainly slipping uh, in that fifth season. So, you know, it probably was a good idea that it did end. But, you know, I, I think I make the point in the book that I, I think, you know, as much as Rod Serling said that he was burned out and tired and fatigued at the end of the fifth season, he would have continued the Twilight Zone if somebody had offered him a sixth season. I think he would have done it forever um, if he could have. And he would have probably just, you know, written, unfortunately written himself you know, into the grave, you know, because he was just that type of guy. He was a workaholic and he just wrote and wrote and wrote. And he was just incredibly prolific and incredibly productive. That was just, just his way. Well, and, and it almost happened. Uh, one of the big surprises I learned from the book was the story of Odd Street. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that was, you know, that was a really nice, uh, for me as a fan, a nice discovery that I found because I'd, I'd heard this title, Odd Street, before, I, you know, kind of vaguely, but I didn't know what it what it was. But it turned out that, yeah, Rod Stone had this idea for a Twilight Zone-esque kind of show after the Twilight Zone called Odd Street. And, and all I could find was his idea for, well, two things, really. One was the idea for the intro, which was a Twilight Zone type of intro where the uh, narrator, you know, assuming it's Sterling, is walking down a, you know, looks like a normal nighttime city street, and he's talking about all the weird things that are on the street, and you see that, you know, there's a calendar in the window that says it's February 31st, you know, and then the camera spins, and you'll see the eye in an optometrist's window. It's a cardboard eye, but then the lid closes. Or, you know, then there's a florist with a Venus flytrap, and it opens up, and there's a hand inside, you know. And so all these strange... uh, imagery is, is going on and he says you know you got to be careful what you buy here this this is odd street and then you know the script that he actually submitted with that that title was called the doomsday flight well the doomsday flight you know the script was rejected as a pilot but the doomsday flight ended up being produced as a made for tv movie later on so it was a very yeah that was a very interesting little uh little discovery i was able to make uh in my research nick parisi with us here on downtown his book is rod serling his life work and imagination. How appropriate that it was 58 years ago today that Newton Minow gave his very famous speech referring to much of television as a vast wasteland, and yet he singled out Rod Serling in the Twilight Zone. I I find myself watching episodes even now that are 60-some years or 50-some years old and thinking, how did he get away with this? But Rod Serling knew that science fiction was a way to get some serious points out there and 
he, he did that perhaps better than anybody else has done in the history of the medium. Yeah, I, w- I would certainly agree with that. And, uh, you know, not only did he do it better, but he did it first. You know, so he paved the way. He paved the way for every science fiction and fantasy series that came afterward. And he, you know, he set the standard. He, he really raised the bar by refusing to dumb down the series, by, by refusing to make it any less intelligent than it was. He, he raised that bar for every science fiction show that came afterward. And it really is amazing that we're talking about this as, you know, it's the 60th anniversary of the Twilight Zone. And what, you know, what other black and white television series are we talking about like this? It's just, there aren't any. There really aren't any. I, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing that these shows are still relevant, that people are still interested in them. And Rod Sterling would be amazed. He really would. He'd be amazed that we're still talking about this. Well, we were just talking about that the other day and the fact that people will still watch shows from the 60s. And whether it's I Love Lucy, The Honeymooners, or any of those, you watch them, but always with that heavy sense of nostalgia. And to me, there's none of that in the Twilight Zone because they remain as relevant as ever. It's timeless. Yeah, it is timeless. And, and you know, I love those other shows you mentioned too, but I'm not sure that uh, any of those shows are really on uh, marathons on, on New Year's Eve and mm. 4th of July. And, and uh, you know, I mean, I, there, was a, there was a magazine that came out just a couple months ago. Uh, it was a British magazine that had, uh, you know, was listing the 100 greatest television series of all time. And on the cover, and this wasn't just science fiction, on the cover it had Mad Men and Seinfeld and Game of Thrones and, and Twilight Zone. You know, Twilight Zone was the only black and white show on the cover of, of the, this magazine. You know, it's, I mean, my local paper, Long Island's Newsday, did a Twilight Zone feature, a whole, a whole section on the Twilight Zone just a few months ago. And this wasn't the new Twilight Zone, this was the original Twilight Zone. I mean, no other 60-year-old TV series is, uh, is viewed in that way. It's, it's really, really amazing. Everybody's got a favorite episode of the Twilight Zone. Nick, what's yours? If I really had to pick one, I, I think I would have to go with Walking Distance. Mine um, as well. Is, you know, <laughs> Rod Sterling's kind of archetypal, you know, uh, uh, meditation on his desire to return to Binghamton, to return to his childhood, his innocent time before the war, and just to go back and, you know, get on a, on a merry-go-round and eat cotton candy and, and all of that. I mean, the older I get, the more I, I love that episode. <laughs> but i got to say, I've always loved that episode. Even when I was a kid, I, I loved that episode. So it's always been near the top, but it's, I think it's taken over the top spot for me at this point. Now, just as Rod Serling's pre-Twilight Zone career was uh, pretty lengthy and, and productive, he did a lot after the series as well, from uh, The Loner to Planet of the Apes, Night Gallery, The Man. Not all of them were successes. From your perspective, what was his most significant and lasting post-Twilight Zone work? Oh, that's a really good question, because this post-Twilight Zone work, that is one of the one of the real things that pushed me to write this book, because I felt like the, the post-Twilight Zone career has been really, really mischaracterized. Uh, I mean, if you read most of what's been written previously, it's that you get the idea that there was the Twilight Zone, and then he just, Rod Sterling just kind of fell off the cliff after that, and, you know, um, he didn't write anything good after the Twilight Zone, but in the book, I hope I get across that he wrote some great things after mm. the Twilight Zone. I mean, I think that, I think that if you just, we're just talking quality, I think the best thing that he wrote was actually um, an episode of the Chrysler Theater called A Slow Fade to Black yes. with Rod Steiger, mm. and this is one of the great unknown stories of Rod Sterling's career. It's one of the best things he ever wrote. And hardly anybody has ever seen it. You know, it's just, um, it's, a, it's about a movie mogul who is dealing with losing control of his uh, empire, basically. And it's a powerful, powerful story. I mean, that's, that's a great one. And, and I, you know, talk about in the book, I love The Loner. I love 
the Western series he did right after the Twilight Zone. I think it's you know just a brilliant, brilliant show. In the book, you talk about uh, a legacy as timeless as infinity and eternity, and my goodness, the names, and, and you, you mentioned some of them earlier. When you talk about Rod Serling's legacy, you talk about the people who are making shows in this new golden age of television, and they seemingly all mention Rod Serling as inspiration. Yeah, and you know, one noteworthy thing about that is, is we're generally talking about uh, writers and showrunners who are writing straight drama. They're not writing science fiction. Mm. We're talking about, you know, we're talking about Mad Men and Sopranos and, you know, and Breaking Bad and The Wire and things like this. These, these are the guys who really, really worship Rod Serling. They, they again, see him as, as the forerunner for what they're doing. He was the guy who broke down those doors and, and made television, you know, something more than it was at the time. And, and, uh, and really just seeing what he did. I mean, when he was on The Twilight Zone, Rod Serling worked 16-hour days, and he did everything on the show from, you know, from beginning to end, you know. So a lot of these guys now who have real control over their series, they see Rod Serling as being the, you know, the first to do that. Well, this is a wonderful work. Uh, again, a comprehensive history and analysis of the work of Rod Serling. Uh, Rod Serling, his life, work, and imagination. Nick, it's been great talking with you. I hope we can do it again as we continue to celebrate the 60th anniversary of Twilight Zone. I hope so, Rich. Thank you very much. Great conversation with Nick Parisi here on Downtown, the podcast. Thanks to Nick. Thanks to Al Stewart as well. And thanks to you for joining us. We hope to see you next time where you'll see us or we'll hear you. Any combination of those will work. It's Downtown, the podcast brought to you by Pineland Farms Dairy and Cross Insurance.